Welcome to Medicare for All Explained. This podcast will enlighten our listeners and dispel the distortions that surround Medicare for All. Medicare for All Explained is produced in collaboration with Physicians for a National Health Program and is hosted and produced by Joe Sparks. I'm your host, Joe Sparks. This is episode 36. We don't have a healthcare system in the United States. My guest, Professor Daniel Skinner, PhD, teaches health policy at Ohio University's Heritage College of Osteopathic Medicine. He covers Medicaid reform, Medicare financing, and issues surrounding creating a healthcare system that covers everybody while providing quality care that is affordable. Professor Skinner earned a PhD and an MA in political science from City University of New York. Professor Skinner also hosts the podcast Prognosis Ohio with WCBE 90.5 FM in Columbus, Ohio. The podcast discusses healthcare, health policy, and health politics in Ohio and other issues that relate to health outcomes such as food, housing, addiction, and mental health. Professor Daniel Skinner, welcome to Medicare for All Explained. Thanks so much for having me, Joe. Great to be here. So, as I mentioned in the introduction, you have a podcast, Prognosis Ohio, and this is the first time I think that I've had another podcaster on, so welcome for that. And as I also mentioned, you're a political scientist, so I'd like to know how you became interested in health policy or decided to focus on that. Yeah, great, Joe, and please do call me Dan, please. Um, I, you know, uh, I studied political science uh, as many uh, typical graduate students do in many ways, um, you know, doing my due diligence with American politics and uh, political theory. But I think the turn to healthcare issues specifically came from two things. Uh, one was a real conviction as I studied political power in America that health and healthcare was one of the areas that you saw it most clearly that where, where a, a thoroughgoing critique of power really could be fruitful, um, in, in the policy and the health policy domain. Uh, but also, um, you know, as you and I have talked about in the past, um, you know, I got sick in 2009, in 2009 with testicular cancer, right as the Affordable Care Act debates were heating up. Uh, literally the night, the night of the House vote, uh, in 2009, in March of 2009, I'm um, sorry, in 2010, um, you know, I, uh, you know, was, was waiting, uh, surgery the next day, listening to this debate about healthcare and just not so many months before that, uh, my union at CUNY had won us healthcare benefits for the first time as adjuncts. I was a teacher at the City University of New York as a graduate uh, student. So, you know, for me, it was very close. Uh, I was not that long away from not having any healthcare coverage. I was observing my own health situation and watching the political process, and I think it all came together for me. Okay, so that's interesting. Um, I personally, you know, had an experience 
where I was getting healthcare on the open market. And in 2006, um, I was charged like $800 a month for a family of five. And then it went up to almost 1600 a month and then 2400 a month by 2008. So I thought there's got to be a better way. So we yeah. both had experiences. Um, one of the things I'd like to mention is, so you had an editorial in Al Jazeera where you said that it may be time to nationalize hospitals. And what I find interesting about, of course, Senator Sanders' Medicare for All bill um, still uses the fee-for-service model, and Representative Jayapal's bill has global budgets, and you're taking it a step farther. So why do you think we should nationalize hospitals or at least have that discussion? Well, you know, in the piece, I tried to thread a fairly, uh, I don't know, I'm mixing my metaphors here, threading a subtle needle. <laughs> but, you know, I, I will say that what I wanted to raise, the, the issue I wanted to raise was really about our political moment. Um, a few years back, it really caught my eye that Senator Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, uh, no friend of Medicare for all, of course, right at the time when the Trump administration was at beginning, you know, the, the first couple efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Senator Graham said was, look, if we don't repeal the Affordable Care Act and replace it with something better, if we don't act now and improve Americans' health care situation, we are going to end up with Medicare for all. And he was saying that in a negative way. Like, you know, if you think this is bad, if we don't act, we're going to end up with the thing we really, really don't want, which is Medicare for all. And, you know, I, I think that uh, my article was written in a similar spirit which is to say, of the lessons we've learned from the COVID-19 pandemic, of the lessons we've learned just in general, even before COVID came in one of the debates, the uh, Democratic uh, primary debates, um, former Mayor Pete Buttigieg raised the issue of hospitals, really kind of, I mean, people had talked about hospitals. Elizabeth Rosenthal has written about hospitals in the New York Times, uh, and now with Kaiser Family Foundation, Kaiser News. But, you know, it used to be the pharmaceutical companies and and the insurance companies, uh, which were the, the, the great enemies of the Medicare for All movement. And then all of a sudden, people were starting to realize, you know what, hospitals need to be addressed too. So to me, we need to at least realize that the current system we have with hospitals is totally unsustainable. And if we don't do something about it, we are going, you know, we are going to be faced with an issue of doing something structurally much bigger than anything that's being talked about in our normal policy debate. Now, are you talking just about hospitals? You said that was unsustainable, but I would argue, also argue that our current healthcare system is unsustainable. So, do you think we sure. will need to do something for hospitals or healthcare system or both? I mean, I would be hard pressed to find a single part of our healthcare system. And by the way, when I first started talking to medical students, you know, a new a new class of medical students where I teach at Ohio University, I always start with a little bit of a philosophical question about what is a system. And, you know, I'm sure listeners to your podcast have already heard this discussion somewhere, which is by any real reasonable definition of a system, we don't have one in the United States. So we have to put system in podcast air quotes here. Um, 
Yeah, and I, but I think that's true of just about every aspect of the system. And, and my invitation to publish the piece in Al Jazeera was really just focusing a light on hospitals. I think they had reached out to me to write that piece because I had been doing some tweeting about uh, hospitals and raising some of the bigger questions. But also, we were at a time, and I'm talking about, I believe it was March or April of uh, this year, of 2020, where there was tremendous, and rightly so, tremendous love for physicians working in hospitals, uh, tremendous you know, appreciation for the work that hospitals were doing, but also a realization you know, that our hospitals, in many cases, were terribly unprepared for what we feared was coming, which came in some places. In my state of Ohio, we were way ahead of the curve, so we did pretty well. We never saw the, at least not yet, um, you know, the, the swelling in the hospitals and the limited capacity. Um, but, you know, it, it, I think it, for the first time in a while, added hospitals right into that mix, right at the center of them. Not just as a, hey, these hospitals are big, bad things or something like that, but are we doing this right and are we really prepared? And I think a lot of Americans saw for the first time how ill-prepared we were. Well, I would agree with that. But what do you think, in terms of not being prepared, what did you notice as a political scientist? Well, maybe we can reformulate the question. I mean, a hospital, there's a very basic question about what kind of an institution a hospital is or should be. Uh, we have lots of different kinds of hospitals in the United States. We have nonprofit hospitals, uh, the majority of them. Um, we have quite a few for-profit hospitals, which is a question. There's also a question about what it means to be a nonprofit. I mean, the, in the United States, huge multi-million dollar, even billion dollar entities are nonprofit hospitals. Um, it's just that they, you know, are classified in certain ways uh, with their tax status as 501c3s, and they don't pay taxes. Um, they're supposed to do a lot in return for that, and there's a big question about whether they do do enough to uh, warrant uh, these tax breaks. Um, and of course, we have you know the veteran system. We have the Indian Health Services, we have community health centers, um, and now we have all these you know stand up uh, clinics, things like uh, urgent cares and all that that are filling some of this gap. So we have a lot of different pieces on the table. But I think one of the questions that something like a pandemic raises for us as a country is, um, you know, should should this be a coordinated system? Can we actually coordinate our hospitals? I, t I took note, for example, of Governor Cuomo right at the height when New York was really getting hit and really struggling. And Governor Cuomo said, yeah, I'm going to take ventilators from one hospital and bring them to another. And somebody asked him, do you, are, do you think he'll get sued if you do that? He's like, I get sued every day. Yeah, maybe. But the point was he actually had to make a big political statement that for the first time he was going to take steps to figure out how to make all of our hospitals work as a system. And I think that that was a moment where we saw that our hospitals don't work as a system, that we need to have the mechanisms in place to do that. And if we can't do that, then something like nationalization has got to be at least on the table. Well, you say our hospitals don't work as a system. Do you think our current healthcare system works as a system? No, I mean, and that was why I said that you know, I always put those air quotes around system when I talk about the American healthcare system because having a coordinated logic 
of different pieces that function together. Um, I mean, this is everywhere from here in Ohio, for example, there's been some great journalism um, out of the, the Plain Dealer and the Vindicator in Youngstown before it went out of business and um, on just on our emergency systems and the disoriented, uh, this disorganized nature of uh, disorganized nature of um, communicating with EMS and the hospitals and you know, diverting when hospital capacity gets overwhelmed. Um, that's an example of, um, you know, where, where we clearly, if we have a system, it's not a well-honed system. So, you know, ultimately, um, if we're going to think about making this move toward, you know, Medicare for All is one way to talk about it. Just the idea of having a system is another. And I think for me, that becomes one of my, my North Stars, if you will. I mean, how do you actually make that happen? Well, if we had a healthcare system, what do you think we want in our healthcare system, and how do we get the system we want? Well, you know, we, we've seen, for example, the surprise billing discussions, which added a lot of fuel to the Medicare for All fire, as it should have. You know, it's outrageous when people go to emergency rooms and only later find out that they're being billed and that, you know, what they went there for was deemed not an emergency. You know, we don't have any way of triaging people in a meaningful way. That's part of a system, if we did, uh, to be able to say to people, look, what you have, what you're dealing with here is not an emergency, but we're going to take care of you. We're going to bring you to a place where we can actually address this issue. Instead, we just send people home or we treat them fully or to the point of stabilization and we bill them. Um, that is not a way to promote wellness at all. And it's not a way to move people through a system in a rational way. And I think that that's part of the system. Um, most of the great healthcare systems in this country, in this world, uh, have a way of bringing everybody in at a, uh, in a way that is not immediately at the emergency level, the high intensity, high cost, uh, you know, sort of level. But then finding them the resources they need as medical professionals, as healthcare professionals, figure out what they do need. If it's something really serious, they get them there. But if it's not, they have a way of working with them, not just sending them home. Right. So to, to, to me, that's a big piece of how you actually, uh, should think about working with patients is, is that the system itself should have a way of distinguishing between an acute need and a chronic condition, um, a false alarm, uh, testing and oversight and, uh, you know, um, watching. Well, what do you think? I mean, obviously, Medicare for all would work, but what do you think would work to make our healthcare system better? Well, you know, and I'll just say to your listeners, so you, you know, when, when you and I first talked, Joe, I, I kind of said to you, look, you know, I, I, I support Medicare for all, uh, wholehearted, wholeheartedly. I think it's, you know, clearly one very good way to go if you can get there. Um, but I also try to think about the broader context, for example, around, um, you know, environmental factors and, and thinking about what, what piece of health, what we call in, in medical or healthcare research, right? Traditional medicine, seeing a doctor, hospitals, all that. What percentage of health is actually related to all of that? And while it's very important, 
you know, I don't want to lose the so-called forest for the trees here. You know, I think that environmental health, um, occupational health, um, you know, just designing our built environment and our cities to facilitate health can take a lot of system, um, to take a lot of pressure off the system so that you have healthier people in your society. And then, you know, when they do need healthcare or medical services, obviously you need a system there for them. So I like to kind of take it back a little bit to think more broadly about how we can, we can engage in those kinds of um, questions as well. The question of, uh, I mean, one, one basic, I think one very attractive piece about this hospital nationalization discussion, even if we're not advocating the nationalization of hospitals exactly, is just the, the idea that we, we need a more elegant design. Um, we need a system. And a patchwork is not a system. And, and that's true whether you're talking about prescription drugs, whether you're talking about um, seeing primary care physicians and specialists, and how you use people like physician assistants and nurses and all these other healthcare professionals. Um, you know, the, all those pieces are out there. It's the way you bring them together. And I think that the hospital question has a lot in common with the Medicare for All question just by the very realization that we don't really have a system to work with yet. And if we're not committed to real coordination, then we've got to think, Differently. And if I could give you just one other example of, of this, I, I, it's an example I use with the medical students that I work with. You know, we've been talking for decades now about um, electronic medical records. Every patient needs a medical record. Well, you know, the, the, the Obama administration included, you know, passed some legislation that, that supposedly, you know, made this a priority. But we still have private healthcare record companies that are basically subverting this at every turn, making it impossible for one record to communicate with another, for the, the platforms to really match up, for true portability. And, you know, if we still use fax machines in the United States. There's no better metaphor of the failure to have a system than the fact in 2020 we still have fax machines everywhere. Well, I have a background in information technology, and it drives mm -hmm. me crazy that we haven't said to these electronic health record companies, okay, you know, you have one year to get this problem resolved, or we'll resolve it for you, and by the way, we're going to start fining you. It's just horrible. And one of the things I will say about both um, Sanders' bill and Jayapal's bill is they p make data collection a part of it so that we can actually evaluate the best treatments and actually improve healthcare. That is an integral part of both their bills. Um, absolutely, absolutely. The other thing, though, I would like to address and is just you know I hear a lot of people talk about healthcare as a human right, and I totally agree with that. But to me, healthcare is a matter of public safety. There was an, a study published in The Lancet, and they found that, well, this was even before COVID, that 68,000 people die because they lack health insurance or they can't get the treatment they need 
because of cost. Now, if we had any other thing just about where 68,000 people died for an avoidable reason, you know, we'd be up in arms. So what do you think about just the public safety argument? I will just say, I mean, there's a a little bit of a darkness to the comment I'm going to make, but we just saw more than 100,000 people die from something that, you know, was, by most estimations, not avoidable, but certainly mitigatable. Um, and, you know, I see people, um, you know, having a good time on the streets of Columbus, Ohio, and they don't seem outraged. Um, I don't see the outrage around the loss of more than 100,000 Americans, the most deaths within the pandemic globally. So I, I think that, you know, raising the shame around, hey, can you believe that we couldn't do better with this? Supposedly the most powerful country in the world, supposedly, you know, um, you know, the beacon of whatever. Um, but this is an absolutely embarrassing. Instead, we have the president saying, um, what a great job we did, right? I mean, uh, because we didn't have 500,000 uh, 500, uh, deaths. So so I think the framework is hard. It, it, it's really, we are in a, we do have a deficit of outrage, I think, around these issues. And I think that's going to be a problem for Medicare for all. If, if you remember back at the Obama years, you know, in the very beginning, President Obama was using a kind of rhetorical frame. One of my passions is, is political rhetoric. He was using a frame of, you know, the shame of 30 or 40 or 50 million uninsured Americans. Well, they had to retool that frame. It didn't test very well. They retooled it to, uh, we're going to lower your co-pays and, you know, make your health care sustainable, those of you who already have it. I mean, they really, you see who has the political power and the uninsured, the unemployed, um, the poor. These are not where the power centers are in the country. So, you know, we ultimately will need this bill if the bill, if the Medicare for all bill, whether it's Jaya Paul's or Sanders bill to pass, we're going to need to find a way to evoke empathy and outrage from Americans. I have to confess to being a cynic about that. And I don't find, I think that in the United States, there is a powerful tradition of civil rights. And we're seeing it right now. Black Lives Matter. We're seeing it in the wake of the killing of George Floyd. We're seeing that aroused, and that's a good thing. But human rights, Americans have been pretty poor on that historically. So I, I'm not persuaded that that's going to be the thing that actually feels the deal. Your public safety argument, I think, is an important one. You know, going back to FDR, I mean, FDR even understood that you can't expect a sick, poor society to go off to war and fight in Germany. You know, he, he understood that you need to provide people at home the security and the foundation to think about larger projects of taking on fascism elsewhere, for example, thing that American leaders like to talk about. Um Ultimately, too, I mean, I think that the arguments that are going to win are going to be the ones that really convincingly demonstrate that, I mean, Medicare for all is, you know, I don't know, maybe it's the only thing that allows us to maintain inequality in this country, that if you, you give 
and take off the healthcare piece, then maybe we don't need to have such frank discussions about these ridiculous tax cuts that you know the Bush administration, George H. W. Bush, um, the George W. Bush administration, and the Trump administration push. You know, right now we are just busting at the seams in every way with the totally inefficient healthcare system. And um, if we could get there, Medicare for all could probably demonstrate its efficacy and its superiority. Question is, how do we get there? Well, that's a good question. I'd like to ask one other question. And of course, COVID has exposed some of the differences in health outcomes among the races in this country. You know, African Americans are being hit especially hard, as are Hispanics. Do you think that proposing Medicare for all and from the people I've talked to as a first, they say it's a first step to improving tending racism in our healthcare system, a first and necessary step. It won't do it by itself, but do you think that would help build support for Medicare for all? I mean, certainly going back to, you know, Dr. King, but before that, um, healthcare as a human right, uh, healthcare as a issue of class, and also an issue of race, this is central to that movement. Uh, so, for sure, you know, I mean, that's that's got to be part of the discussion here in Ohio. Um, you know, we our, our infant mortality rate, for example, is coming down, but the disparity between black and white is increasing. Um, you know, any number of issues. It was the least surprising thing for me in the world. I was studying this to find out that there were massive racial and ethnic disparities in COVID because this isn't about one disease or one crisis. This is about a structural dynamic of inequality, a systematic oppressive structure. So you're going to, you know, when you have that in place, you're going to find disparity everywhere you look. And certainly that's one of the attractive points about large-scale reform of the American healthcare system. Um, if that's kind of what you're pointing at. I, I think that, like, you know, for sure, if, if it, like, Medicare for all, but also, you know, environmental justice is a huge racial issue. You know, I like uh, think, thinking about where, where municipal dumps and where asthma rates are placed in which neighborhoods, the history of housing, healthcare. I think sometimes, and this is one of the things I worry about, not because I'm not all in on Medicare for all on some level, but I want to make sure we don't go all in on it to the exclusion of other issues. I think climate change is a huge issue of class and race. We need to make sure that we don't spend, let's say there's a President Biden and we somehow convince him to get all in on Medicare for all, and we have a Democratic Senate, you know, there's a thing called political capital, and you, you do need to think about how you're smart in those first moments of a new administration. And Medicare for all would be a big lift, and I just worry or I wonder what it would be able to carry with it, re-engaging climate change treaties, uh, re-engaging in broader issues of uh, equity and equality. Well, of course, I generally focus on 
health policy and Medicare for all for this podcast, but I firmly believe in addressing inequality. We need a holistic approach. We need to make sure that everybody has enough to eat, that everybody has decent housing, that everybody can get a good education. So I do realize that and totally agree with you on that point, that there are a bunch of issues that need to be addressed. And as you put it, we need a holistic approach, or I think we need to create a system to address those issues. Um, and I'll also add this, Joe. I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's important to not, you know, I'm a professor of health policy, um, not health care. I mean, right. health care is one piece of health policy. But I do think it's really important for us to think about health broadly. I mean, education is education policy is education policy, but also it's food policy because so many kids get their meals and depend upon their meals because they go to school. And we saw that with COVID when the schools got shut down. It was an educational crisis, but it was also a food crisis. You know, so I think it's important for us to think that way and to also change just even the meaning behind what we think we're talking about when we're talking about and what we're including under the, the umbrella of health policy. Well, as you mentioned, one of the things that I would hope if we had a Medicare for All system, if, you know, the medical providers discover, oh, there are other problems that this person has, that there's a place where they can contact like the social services agency and say, hey, this person needs help here too. So, you know, can we get that to mm -hmm. them? Yeah. And, and, yeah. And I'll also just say, I mean, in terms of the expenditures, I mean, if, you, if you're running a hospital in an area with um, poor housing stuff, you're going to have kids coming in with asthma and you're going to have trips and falls and injuries and you're going to have lead. You know, fixing housing is going to remove a considerable part of what we then understand to be health problems. Um, and, you know, that's why a lot of people uh, in the medical world have started to realize the importance of housing as a first point of contact. And we need to get people in off the streets if homelessness is the issue, obviously, but into safe and in green, frankly, housing. Oh, I totally agree with that. Um, before we end, is there anything that you would like to add? Well, you know, I have a few hours of <laughs> comments to make. I mean, look, these are big issues. Um, but I will say that um, we are in the middle of a pandemic. We are at a moment of heightened um, awareness about racial justice and, and, and violence against people of color, violence against black Americans in particular. Um, but we're in the middle of a presidential election. I mean, this is a real hard year. It's a sad year. We've lost, you know, unspeakable numbers of lives. Um, and there's a lot of suffering and trauma and pain. Um, but, you know, people who are doing work out there, I think, have to leverage this opportunity to get real uh, results. And I do think that Medicare for All is a really important part of that conversation. But I also think that we need to make sure we don't miss opportunities to just get people what they need um, now. And that is a concern of mine that we uh, that we can't do both of those things. I think we can do both of them, but I don't think we always do. 
And I would encourage listeners to look for those opportunities, even as we build this coalition for large-scale you know, system reform. I certainly second that. And Dan, thank you so much for being on Medicare for All Explained. Thanks, Joe. Take care. You have been listening to Medicare for All Explained. Information about this podcast can be found at our website, medicareforallexplained.org. The music for this show is Super Bubbly by Jesse Spillane. The logo was created by Lily Sparks. Thank you for listening.